passage. If you would, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. This week we'll look specifically at verses 15 uh, through 25. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible and open up to page 1076. 1076. Not only that, please, uh, we encourage you to take that Bible home with you as a gift from us to you. God's Word is so uh, important in the life of His followers, but also uh, in searching for our need for Christ uh, we see it all through Scripture. We have been walking through uh, the book of Galatians for quite some time. And over the past uh, several weeks, we've been really focusing on one uh, theme, if you will. And that is, uh, really, how, how is it that we are made right with God? And how do we continue to be right with God, right? So it's not just one time, but, but, but how do we know that we are continuously in right standing with God? And so what's happening in the early church there, specifically in the province of Galatia, where uh, Paul and Barnabas went on that first missionary journey and, and shared the gospel and lives were uh, radically changed and churches were planted. Uh, false teachers were going in immediately or shortly after their departure uh, back to Antioch of Syria. And these Judaizers or false teachers were, were saying that in order to be right with God, it's not just Jesus. You need something else, right? Primarily, you need works, works of the law, the, mosaic, the law that was given to Moses, and specifically uh, that of circumcision. And so Paul is there. He's, he's fighting that. He's arguing against that. He, he uses his own testimony. He uses the testimony of those followers of Christ in Galatia. Uh, he goes all the way back to the Old Testament. He starts with Abraham, so prior to the law given to Moses and how uh, Abraham was justified before the Lord. Uh, he also uses uh, the law that was given to Moses. And so for the past several weeks, we've been really looking at uh, the law and the promise of God. How is it that these uh, come together, right? And, and really what today is about is, is side by side, how does the law, the law is kind of like the on-ramp to the gospel. And that's important to realize uh, because the law is good. It comes from God, just like the gospel comes from God. But the law had specific purposes, right? Uh, and so what we're going to find in our passage this morning is, is the limitations of the law in many ways and the beauty of the gospel. And so it's right here in verses 15 through 25. And so what we'll do is we'll read the passage together in its fullness, uh, but we will be unpacking uh, five specific truths that come through this passage. And I hope it will be encouraging to you as a follower of Christ and for those who are searching uh, for purpose and, and their need for the Lord. I pray that today would be an awesome day in your next step uh, in bringing the Lord into your life. Uh, but we're going to begin in verse 15, read through 25, and then we'll pray and then we'll get started. So Paul begins in verse 15. He says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offering, offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, it, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So there's a lot there. So I think it would be wise for us to pray and ask God to give us discernment on what he wants to teach us. So let us pray. Lord, we come to you this morning uh, humble before you. Uh, Lord, I pray that we realize that uh, the great mark of a follower of Christ is not pride, it is humility. And so every time we come to the word of the Lord, if it's a passage that is uh, complex or a passage that we are very familiar with, we come with the same posture every time, and that is with tremendous humility before you. And so we ask the Holy Spirit of God to go before us, reveal your truth, remind us of the beauty of your truth, and through the same Spirit of God, Lord, let us live in those truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So you ready? Uh, I need to hear it better than that, because we got a lot to do today. You ready? All right, I love it, I love it. All right, first truth that we see in this passage from these verses is God's law doesn't replace his promise. That's the first thing that we see in this passage is that God's law doesn't replace his promise. We're going to see that specifically in verses 15 through 18. And, and again, we have to understand what Paul is addressing. Paul is addressing the very attacks that were going into the early church, that it's not just Jesus. It's, yes, Jesus, but it's something else. And so this is important. And we have to realize that this is the same battle that many of us face each and every day as a follower of Christ. That it can't just be Jesus. It has to be something else. There has to be something that I have to do. And what Paul is going to show us right out of the gate is that God's law doesn't replace his promise. So let's read verses 15 through 18 one more time so we can take that idea and uh, unpack it a little bit. The scripture says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which uh, came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So how do we know that God's law, the bringing of the law, doesn't replace the promises of God? How do we know? Well, there's multiple reasons that we see in these uh, verses here. First, the promise of God is permanent. That's what we see in verse 15 and verse 17. Paul, through the Holy Spirit of God, is making it clear that the promises of God are permanent, whereas the law, in many ways, has temporal aspects to it. We're going to see that a little bit later. And what Paul does masterfully is he uses the, the lesser to the greater argument. And we can understand this. He starts with how, how we as people have covenants or agreements with one another, right? Think about a contract for just a moment. We get this. You go buy a house, you have to do what? I mean, half the time, you don't even know what you're signing. You just start signing, right? And before you know it, you're handing over checks, receiving checks, and all that good stuff, and you just hope you get keys or give keys away at the end of the whole thing, right? And the whole point is that when you, when you come into an agreement or a contract with somebody else, it, it, you're agreeing to the terms together. It, it, now, it can be changed, but the agreement has to be changed how? Together. And oftentimes, what people will do is they'll rip up the original, and they'll sign a new one, right? We understand that. But the importance is there is a difference between the contracts that we make, like buying a house or buying a car or whatever it is, and the covenants of God. How do we know? Because we're talking about an inheritance, right? So think about that for just a moment. Uh, you may have heard of people making a will or making a trust, right? Now, the purpose of a will or a, the purpose of a trust is to do what? It's so that when you pass away, that you can have your wishes be carried out after your death, right? And, and you bring that to an attorney, the attorney ratifies it, right? And so what happens when you die? Whatever you put in that will or that trust gets what? It gets carried out, 
Now the question is, who determines how it gets carried out? Is it, is it the people that are left living here on earth that determine how it gets carried out? No, it's the person who has now been deceased. They're the ones that determine how it's going to be carried out. And so what Paul is telling us is that just like a covenant is made when you think about a trust or a will, and it's carried out by the one person who put it together, not determining on everybody else's input, because that's where a lot of the conflict happens after someone passes away, by the way. Everybody wants their own idea put in the mix. It doesn't work that way, right? God says, just like that human to human, how much greater is God's covenant with man? You see, God gave the promises or the covenant to Abraham. And no matter what happened, God was never going to change it, right? Why? Because God does not change. He is forever faithful, forever good. And that's what we see. It's a reminder to us that the very fact that God gave a promise to Abraham is an amazing work of amazing grace. God didn't have to do it. But God decided to make promises to Abraham and to the generations that follow who are in faith in Christ. So it's an unconditional promise. So we hear about bilateral contracts, meaning there's two parties involved. This is a unilateral covenant. It's God and God alone. God is the one that sets it out. God's the one that fulfills it. God's the one that uh, keeps it secure. It's not based on what we want or how we want it or when we want it. This is God's promises. So we know that the law does not replace the promise because the promise is what? It is eternal. It is permanent. The second thing that we learn about uh, the promise versus the law is uh, the promise of grace doesn't come through works. It comes through faith. That's, that's what we've been talking about for several weeks. In fact, Paul would say it like this in Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, so works of the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promises are what? They're void. In other words, long before God gave the law to Moses, right, the works aspect, this is what you do, God gave precious promises to Abraham. And how is it received? It's received one way and one way only. And that's the same way that you and I receive it today. It's through faith in the Lord. Nothing will change that. It's based on God's promises, not Abraham's performance. To say it even clearer, it's based on God's promises, not your performance, right? So that's important. When God gave law, the law to Moses, right, the works, remember how it was packaged. Remember how it was communicated. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, right? This is what you do. There's an obedient side to the law that was given to Moses. However, when God gave the promises to Abraham, clear difference in how it was communicated. Not thou shalt not, but what? I will. I will. I will. I will. So there's a clear distinction between the law that was given to Moses and the very promises that were given to Abraham. And again, how do we receive those promises? Well, we saw this before, but it bears repeating. Galatians 3.8 and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. How is it that he receives the blessing? How is it that he receives the promises of God? Through faith, not through works. You see, salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we will ultimately break, right? It rests on a promise that God can absolutely never, ever break. So that's why we know that the promise is supreme over the law. And this is good news. Listen, the good news of salvation is the fact that it's not based on your ability to keep law, to keep God's standards. It's based on the very one who has fulfilled the very standards of the law. That leads us to 
uh, another truth about why uh, the law did not replace the promise, and that is this. The promise is secured in Christ. It's secured in Christ. This is important. This is the tremendous beauty of the gospel, that the, the great burden of your eternal security doesn't rest on you. It rests on our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is beautiful. God is the one who gives the promises. God is the one who fulfills the promises. How do we know? Again, we talked about the, the thou shalt not statements of the law and the I will promises of God. And think about just uh, Abraham alone. Like you get to Genesis 12 when God first uh, encounters Abraham and says, leave your land, leave everything, come follow me. Where am I going? I don't know. Abraham says, I don't know where I'm going. God says, I'll, I'll show you where you're going. So all this promises of God, I will make you, you look out into the stars, you, I'll make you a blessing of all nations. Those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. You know, all those different things, everything hindered on what, what God will do. You get to Genesis 15, the same thing happens. At this time, Abraham still doesn't have a son. Sarah and Abraham don't have a son, but yet the promises are, are fulfilled where? In the Lord. And it's based on his faith in the Lord that it was counted as what? It's counted as righteousness. And the way that, that that first covenant came about was that there were sacrifices that were brought. Remember, God said, Abraham, go get all these different things. And Abraham knew what that meant. They didn't sign contracts and covenants like we do today. There was a sacrifice that was made, and that sacrifice was split in two. And the two parties that were involved in that contract or covenant would walk through the divided pieces. But something happens in this particular situation. Abraham brings the sacrifices. The sacrifices were split. Therefore, the next step is what? God and Abraham would walk through it. But what happened? God put Abraham to what? To sleep. And who was the one that walked through? God and God alone, right? You get to Genesis 17. Again, the sign of the, of the covenant is through circumcision. Again, God saying, I will, I will. In fact, when you go to Genesis 22, and I encourage you to read that passage. It is an incredibly important passage. It's when uh, Abraham and Isaac go up to the mountaintop, right? And Isaac is about ready to be sacrificed, right? And what does God do? God puts a halt to all of it. And what does he do? He provides a ram in the thicket to be sacrificed. And remember what God was called. Remember the name that was given to him. Jehovah Jireh. God provides. I will. I will. I will. Now, you have to understand, this promise doesn't start with Abraham. In fact, it goes all the way back. Genesis 3. Now, set the context just for a moment. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are extremely important to the life of a follower of Christ. Genesis 1 and 2, we know that God created everything from nothing. God created it perfectly. The pinnacle of his creation was uh, man and woman, and they had a perfect relationship with the Lord. But what happens? Man chose to sin, right? Sin enters the world. That perfect relationship has been broken. But in the midst of all of that, God gives what? He gives the promise of the gospel. Genesis 3, uh, 15, the scripture says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, your offspring and her offspring, the scripture says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So all of this is talking about ultimately the battle between God and Satan. Now, remember how Abraham packaged it. Verse 16, he said what? He said, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. I did not say offsprings, right? A better translation might be seed. So think about seed for just a moment. What did we hear in Genesis 3.15? That, that there is an offspring that is coming. There is a seed that is coming. Now, the question is, who is the seed? Who is the offspring? Who's the one that's going to conquer Satan? Who's the one that's going to conquer sin? Who's the one that's going to conquer death? And throughout the entire Old Testament, the language of seed gets narrower and narrower and narrower. Think about it like this. When the promise came, the promise said it would be seed of a woman, right? 
Then it continued through Abraham's family, then the tribe of Judah, then David's family, and ultimately rests fully and finally where? In Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son. That is the seed that redemptive history is pushing towards, right? So that is so, so important. Now, why? Because Jesus Christ fulfills all the promises of God. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God, find their what? Find their yes. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So the only way that we can have the very promises that were given to Abraham from God come through faith, by grace through faith, right? So how do we know that the law did not replace the promises? Because the promises are eternal. They're eternal. And so I pray that that would be helpful for you today. Second thing that we see in this passage is God's law exposes our sin. God's law exposes our sin. Uh, We see this in uh, verse 19, all the way really from 19, the uh, first part of verse 19, uh, the scripture says, why then the law? So that's the question we've been waiting for, right? Why the law? And then what does he say? He says, it was added because of transgressions. Now, the word transgression means to cross a line, right? In other words, God has a standard. God has a picture of holiness. And to, 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 to transgress that means that you cross that line. It's like a, a sign that's lit up on a person's property that says what? No trespassing. The way that you trespass that is how? That you cross that barrier. You cross that line. And so let's think about how God's law exposes our sin, well, one of the things, again, that the law does is it creates boundaries, right? One of the reasons why we have laws is to restrain us from hurting ourselves and creating great damage, right? And that's what we see in Scripture. Now, think about it like this. How many of y'all have laws and rules in your life? I guess nobody, right? How many? I didn't say if you like them. I'm saying do you have them, right? As a parent, why do you have laws and rules in your home? You want to protect those little ones, right? Because they're all over the place, right? But we have rules to somehow restrain us from getting in trouble. So again, we have many, many, many rules. Now, oftentimes we don't agree with them, right? But we have them. And part of the reason is because of how law exposes our sin is, is the boundaries to restrain us from getting hurt. But God's law is also like a mirror, right? It reflects the holiness of God, but it also... Uh, reflects the sinfulness uh, of man. The law not only shows us who God is, but it shows us who we are. And in fact, God's law gives us a true reflection of ourselves, right? If you want to find out who you truly are apart from Christ, go to the law of God, because that's exactly where you find that you are sinful. In fact, it's the law of God that brings us knowledge of sin. The scripture says in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. The law of God removes all ignorance to your sinfulness. That's important. We know we don't measure up to God's standards, every single one of us. In fact, the scripture says that God has implanted the law of God in the hearts of all people, so everybody is held accountable when they stand before the Lord, right? There there is no wiggle room here. And so the law exposes our sin because it's like a mirror. We know we are sinners because the mirror of God's law says what? Says so. Not because my mom or dad thinks I'm good, but God's law says I'm really, really bad. 
The next thing that we see about how the law exposes our sin is God's law makes us worse, not better. Now, that's interesting because first we learn that the law was there to create boundaries and restraints, but what we also find in Scripture is that God's law makes us worse, not better. Now, again, we're talking about the works of the law, us, our ability to fulfill it on our own strength. So keep that in perspective here. How do we see this in Scripture? So you see the law creates boundaries, but in the midst of those boundaries, it entices us to what? To do more sin. We want to resist God's law. Why? Because at birth, we're rebels at heart. That's why we don't have to teach little, little kids how to be bad. It's something that they come with, right? Think about it like this. Speed limit signs. How many of y'all love those? All right, growing up in Turkey, we would travel to Germany for vacation every once in a while, and Germany has an amazing stretch of highway called the Autobahn. Very little speed limits. I mean, you can just hum as fast as you want, right? Now, thankfully, I wasn't doing the driving. My dad was doing the driving. I was too young. But here I am. I have a driver's license in South Carolina, and I am convinced that I have an Autobahn foot trying to adhere to South Carolina laws, right? And in fact, I had a, a double whammy because for a long time, I drove a minivan. And it gave me great pride if my minivan could beat your sports car, right? But now that I have a better vehicle, when I'm around minivans, I don't want to be beat by them, right? So it's like this tug of war, right? That's happening. So this enticement of sin, the law has a way of making people want to break it, right? Push the limits. Go a little bit further, right? Paul talks about this in Romans 7. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work and our members to bear fruit for death. In other words, the law doesn't just expose sin, it arouses more sin. Separated from Christ, our hearts are self-centered at the core, right? And the law stirs that self-centeredness up. Paul continues on in verse 7 and 8. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? He says, what? By no means. In other words, the law is not the issue. The sinful nature of the human heart is the issue. Yet if I, do not, uh, if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said so. Remember, you shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. But then listen to what he says. So he's aware of the law, right? The 10th commandment, do not covet. But what does he say in verse 8? But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. The heart of man says, give me a rule, and I'll do more than just break it. I will long to break it. I will scheme. I will manipulate. I will hide. And I will deny. But I will find a way to break it. Anybody relate to that. No, we're too good for that, right? No. So the law exposes our sin. The law exposes the sinfulness of our heart. Again, don't stop with behavior because behavior is just the outcome of what's really happening. This is why it's important for us not to address just behavioral stuff. You get to the root. The reason why the fruit is there is because the root is wrong. And that's what the scripture is saying. It exposes the sinfulness of our heart. A third, God's law has its limits. This is interesting. God's law has its limits. We see this in the second part of verse 9 through verse 21. In other words, the law has its limits because it's temporal, where the promises of God are eternal. The law only lasts for a season. Galatians 3, 19 and 20, it says, until, so that's a mark of time, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law given to Moses, well, with all its ceremonies, with all its uh, rules, with all its curses, all those different things, the, the sacrifices, everything, it has its limits. The law served a specific purpose in God's redemptive plan. But when Christ came, everything changed. When Jesus came, the work of the law was finished. Now, this does not mean 
that God's moral law ceases to exist. No, God's moral law will always exist because God's moral law reflects the holiness of God. Right? So that's important. But there are aspects of the law that no longer exist. The requirements of the law were fulfilled in Christ. How do we know? Because at Mount Sinai, where the law was given, it was ultimately fulfilled where? At Mount Calvary, where Jesus laid down his life. So it's temporal, but it's also limited because the law came from another mediator. Now this is amazing. Think about what the scripture is saying. The scripture goes on to say, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now think about this. For, that, this, this is one of the hardest verses to try to figure out what God's word is trying to say. There are many, many different ways that people look at it. So let's, let's just look at it for just a moment. Uh, when God gave the law back uh, in the Old Testament in Exodus to Moses, right? Something happened that it doesn't show there, but it does show uh, through it other places in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. When God first gave the law, he first gave it to the angels. The angels, in turn, gave it to Moses, and Moses did what? He gave it to the people of Israel. Now, that, I find that fascinating, but this makes sense, right? Because Moses isn't holy. Moses isn't perfect. So there needed to be an intermediate a person to mediate the, the, the situation. And so God gave it to the angels, the angels gave it to Moses, and Moses gave it to the people. Now, how do we know? Because in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, when Moses is at the very end of his life, he, he talks about the blessings of God through his people, and he goes back to the law. And what does he say? He says that the law was given from who? From God to the angels to me. When you look at King David, when David writes one of his songs of praise in the book of Psalms, Psalm 68, uh, verse 17, he talks about that very thing, how, how the law was given to angels and then to Moses. When Stephen gets up in Acts 7 and preaches that amazing sermon, right, the first martyr of our faith, what happens? Even to Stephen himself says that the law was what? Was given by the angels. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2.2 says the same thing, that the, the law that was given to Moses was, was given through the angels. Now, what are we to make of all this, right? Well, this is what I gather. Where the law is limited in needing someone to mediate it, right? The promises of God were not. It only needed God and no one else, right? Now, think about that for just a minute, because that's what verse 20 says. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So, in order for the law to come, and ultimately get to the people of God, it had to go through multiple hands, if you will. It had to go through angels, it had to go through Moses, and then Moses had to be the gap, if you will, between God's people and the Lord. And we see the priests have done the same thing throughout Old Testament history. However, when Christ came, that was no longer needed, right? Why? Because Jesus Christ is who? He is our mediator. He is our advocate. And he did what? What did Jesus do? Jesus himself came down from heaven to the darkness of this world on his own accord. He is our advocate. That's why I love what John says in 1 John chapter 2. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our own sins only, but what? But for also the sins of the entire world. This means I do not have to go to someone else to go to God. I go through Jesus Christ. He is my great high priest, Hebrews 4 says, right? So this is important. We no longer need those other things. We go straight to him. And this is great news. Why? Because we are lawbreakers. But the way that we remain right with God, the way that we come into right standing with God is through the same source, Jesus Christ and other. other. And that leads us to the, the next part about the law and its limitations. The law cannot give life. The law cannot and will not change our sinful nature. 
Verse 21 in Galatians 3, it says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, the, the mirror will reveal your uncleanness, but it cannot do anything to clean, right? Think about how you look at yourself in the mirror, right? You see all these different things, right? Just looking in the mirror does nothing for you other than expose it. You need something else to clean it. The law will tell us what to do, but it does not give us the power to do it. This was never God's purpose of the law. God never gave the law as a means of salvation. God gave the law to show us our need for a Savior. That's the whole purpose. So what happens if we're banking our eternal security on our ability to do the works of the law? Remember what Paul said in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We stand guilty. We stand condemned. So the law has its limits. So far, we've talked about everything that the law can't do, right? Now we're going to start shifting a little bit. Uh, what do we learn uh, in verses 22 through 24? The scripture tells us that God's law drives us to de- Jesus. This is one of the purposes of the law. It, it actually drives us to Jesus. When, when God added the law 430 years after the promises were given, he didn't give it to replace the law or replace the promise. He gave it to show us our desperation and to show us our need for Jesus. Verse 22 through 24, listen to these words of desperation, right? But the scripture did what? Imprisoned. That's a great word to underline. It imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were what? We were held captive. That's another phrase to underline. Under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, the law was what? Our guardian. That's another good word to underline. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So do you see how the law makes us desperate? It says we are imprisoned. The law reminds us that not only do we constantly fall short... But what? We are locked into sin's power. The bars of our sin jail us on all sides, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? Not only that, we're held captive. The law reminds us that we have no way of escape. No matter how much we try, no matter how much searching we do, when we look for the loophole, the loophole is not there. We're also under a guardian. The law reminds us that we are under constant, constant watch. Now think about a guardian for just a moment. Uh, In this particular culture, you had, uh, usually in well-to-do families, you had a, a slave that was, uh, their role was a guardian to the kids. And so uh, if you had kids uh, from the ages of six uh, through early uh, teenage years, this person would be assigned to them. So the guardian is not uh, a teacher. Some of the translations would say a teacher. A guardian is, 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 is really a taskmaster, if you will. So part of the role of the guardian was to protect them, but the, the guardian would go with them everywhere they went. So just imagine that for a minute. Everywhere you go, This guardian is there. And what is the guardian doing? The primary role of the guardian is to tell you what you're doing wrong, right? How many of us have ever thought we had parents like that? I hope not. Or a coach like that, or a teacher like that. So constantly showing you the standard, but also telling you where you have failed the standard. And that is what the guardian was supposed to do. And they never deviated from that role. They were locked in. That was their primary role. That is a good reminder of the law. The law reminds us over and over again that we have failed. We are in the inescapable prison of God's standards and our sinfulness. The law, as our guardian, makes us tired and desperate. Why? Because we can never, ever do it. And it's in that desperation that the law pushes us to our need for Jesus Christ. And I don't think this is just true of those who don't know the Lord. I think it's a gracious reminder for those of us who do know the Lord that we can't do it. And we need Jesus. So that struggle is there. Paul recognizes struggle. Romans 7, verse 14 through 25. For, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, 
but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Anybody recognize that? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you see the imprisonment? Do you see being in held captivity? Do you see the guardian? And what does the scripture say? How is it that I will escape? How will it be that I will be set free? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the law frustrates us. It disciplines us. It holds us accountable to God's standards. Even if we acknowledge him or not, it does all those things, but the law ultimately prepares us for Christ. The law anticipates the cure for man's sinfulness. It drives us over and over again to Jesus. And that leads us to our fifth and final thing. Faith in, faith in Jesus brings radical change, radical change. The gospel of grace changes everything. We need the law. We need it to draw us to Jesus Christ. The promises are all fulfilled in him. The burden is lifted. How? Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The key, the key that had once locked us, right? Where we were locked in the prison cell of sin, the key of God's amazing grace unlocked it and set us free. We are no longer held captive to our sin. Romans 6.14, for sin will, no, will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but you are what? You are under grace. The power of sin is removed. You are no longer guilty. Romans 8, 1 through 4, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, we are no longer under the penalty of sin. And lastly, we are no longer lifeless. We have new life in Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who lived, loved me and gave himself for me. So now we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the beauty of the limitations of the law and the beauty of the promises of God? Do you see why it's so important to understand that the promises of God are eternal and the law itself is temporal? Do you see why the law exists in the first place? Do you see how it not only exposes us of our sin, reminds us day in, day out as a guardian that we have failed, that there's nothing we can do. The, the warden of our soul apart from Christ says, not good enough. But in Christ, we are set free, perfect, holy, loved, redeemed, approved, adopted, part of my family. To God be the glory. I pray that God's word has just excited your soul this morning. God's word is so good. I pray every day that you read God's word, you will, you will anticipate Christ to be magnified because that's exactly what it does.